0: This is episode 5 of the audiobook slash podcast project called Unconscious Subconscious, voiced, written, and produced by me, Matt Rebar. Chapter Negative 18. Existence 2. Collegium City was an academic university spread out through the jungle. Its buildings were astute and crisp, while its overall complexion reeked of astuteness. My recent acquaintance James Dubois was a student of the city and he was the one to lead me through the streets. Bookstores, coffee shops, cultural dinings hung between open fields of cornhole and suntanners. There was a library on every corner and a gym on every block. Like James Du Bois, the fashion was minimal tight, small shorts and tops, which kept everyone a few inches off from nudity. The heat seemed to have been wiped out of the area in the pursuit of human enjoyment. The rivers were used as pools to cleanse and refresh. But all of these were candy for the eyes. My true quest in Collegium City was to meet with Dean Esbiz, the supposed predictor who was awaiting my coming like that of Jesus Christ. The problem was that I was nothing like Jesus. I was not here to save this world. I was here to extract what I needed to and return to my own. It was selfish, but when had selfishness become exclusive to a category in the choice between good and bad? So are you a student of Dean Esbiz? I asked James du Bois while crossing town. In most college campuses, parking and cars were a large deal, but with nothing more than motorcycling, scooters, and bikes, the streets were clear and accidents appeared non-existent. I'm a student of multiple disciplines, one of them being spirituality. What do you learn about in spirituality? Mostly about the internal conflicts and then the solutions to those internal conflicts. What kind of internal conflicts? Questions like, what's the meaning of life? What is the meaning of life? Well, in my experience and knowledge, I think the meaning is to be happy. Because to say there is no meaning would be a lie because we as thinking creatures create meaning. So maybe for a plant or an animal, there is no meaning. But because of our nature, there is meaning. We're not here to work and slave away over things. We are here to enjoy ourselves. And that comes in so many forms. Meeting a lover, raising a family, pursuing our interests, Seeing the world, hell, maybe working and slaving away. To one person, being happy might just be by knitting a sweater. To another, it could be playing basketball. Happiness is personalized and comes in many forms than hatred. So, who brought life? That's more of an interesting question, James Du Bois muttered as we stopped on a street corner. In front of us was what appeared to be the main street. The administration building of Collegium City stood tall and mighty, with a parking lot filled to the brim with motorcycled cycles. The main street was flooded with traffic as people headed to the different spots of the city or perhaps even their own living quarters. I believe in Clark, James answered while we were both watching the zooming escapade of traffic in front of us. There's so much to Gignosco, so many situations and dependencies, so many things that require the exception and not the rule, so many things that are coincidences that when stacked up seem less of a coincidence and more of a purpose. I find that in life, we come across so many things with purpose. Granted, I don't think we're thinking of that purpose a lot. We're thinking about the mundane, not the grand. We'd rather focus on the bitter situation more than the sweet situation. We appreciate the happiness, but we're more likely to harp on the ugliness. Other people in my same studies and classes do not believe in Clark. Mainly they don't believe in him because there's a lack of evidence. There's no hard proof that suggests that there's a singular man or a singular energy behind the movements of the universe. Those students want science, they want explanation, they want to see to believe. But things that have happened in this universe have been so incredulous that Things just have never happened before. So yes, I believe in Clark. I believe he exists and runs things with lavender. What do you know about lavender? Lavender is the source of Clark. James and I crossed another street, heading deep into the back ends of the academic cluster. It's his energy. It is him, but at the same time, it's more than just Clark. There's old stories that Clark was alone in this world and that a nameless energy began pouring out of him, which in turn created everything around Clark, including us. That nameless energy formed all the greatness and all the terrible things within the world. The energy became known as Lavender. There are multiple variants of the relationship between Clark and Lavender. Some believe the two operate as successful beings. Others believe one of the two is more dominant. Some believe Clark did not control Lavender, or merely that Clark was so strong that Lavender was his offspring, or maybe otherwise that Lavender was created without Clark's sought, approval, or involvement. It's kind of like the chicken and the egg, which came first. Either way. It said that Lavender is what made the world what it is, but they also know that Lavender would not have existed without Clark. Clark is a physical entanglement, while lavender is the incumbent energy. James Du Bois and I finally arrived at the location of Dean Esbiz, which was a large academic building which was connected to some kind of planetarium. I was confused to see such a building considering there were no stars to be seen and no objective view of the entire sky, considering how massively 3D Gignosco is but I didn't question it. After all, I was a visitor and nothing more. It's all very interesting, isn't it? I sighed as James led me into the building. A few classrooms were being utilized for instruction as a few students lingered in the outside halls. Absolutely, that's why I study it. We made our way up to the second floor and to an office next to the planetarium. James knocked on the office door of Dean Esbiz and was instructed to come in from who I presumed was Dean Esbiz. We entered the office and I looked around. The office was filled with artifacts and a collection of material from the corners of Gignosco. The office windows gave a beautiful look out to Collegium City, the Awakening Jungle, and the hazy purple blotted beyond. Dean Esbiz was standing at his elevated desk, which was made so that Dean Esbiz didn't need to be chained to a chair. Papers, books, office supplies covered the wooden desk, which seemed to mimic the jungle wood in the surrounding biome. Dean Esbiz was a tall, thin man with wide eyes, a wicked goatee, and salt-pepper hair which made him look both old and young, with a twist of adventure within his bones. He wore a doctor's robe, yet the color of deep purple that was on its way to black. Dean Esbiz moved with a determined grace, the kind of steps that knew where they wanted to go, although tread lightly upon the ground. The man's presence was like a praying mantis as he crossed the room to his student, du Bois and I. Bois, who did you bring to see me?' Esbez asked, his words directed at James, but his eyes were directed upon me. "'Sir, this man, this man is looking for Clark.' Esbez's eyes blew up like atomic bombs, the fallout occurring within the crests of his skin, the tingling of his nose, the loss of vigor within his lips, and the expulsion of air from his mouth. "'You, you're looking for Clark?' Esbez asked. This question clearly aimed at me. I am, I nodded. I was walking through the jungle. It's been a long journey, but I coincidentally came upon James here. He informed me that you had predicted someone like I would find you here in Collegium City in an effort to find Clark. I'm seeking him. Alongside his powers of lavender, James explained what he knew about them, but it would be great if you could aid me. First, I would like to know why you are finding Clark. Ezbez asked the question to which I would never be able to fully respond to anyone within this realm. The answer was too unorthodox and shocking. Instead, I'd have to construct something different. Again, I would be lying, although it would work for the greater good. I am seeking him because I am trying to save Gignosco, I responded. As you know, great evil forces threaten Gignosco every day. I feel it is my duty, as it is all of humanity's duty, to find a way to stop the evil within this world. Clark is the ultimate creator, and Lavender is the ultimate power. Perhaps Clark will be able to use Lavender to save the good parts of his creation. Interesting theory, Esbiz nodded, walking around in a large circle which mimicked his office's shape. You do realize that it's said that Lavender acts of its own accord. How do you think Clark will have control of it? He is the ultimate. Is Clark not? I questioned. No matter how strong his powers are, they still act within Clark's domain. We would not exist without Lavender. Lavender would not exist without Clark. Have you ever had the power to do something, yet you had no control over the power you had? Such as when the body goes into adrenaline and you're able to save a child who otherwise would have been flattened by a truck. An individual can accomplish a lot, but sometimes we are dependent on things outside of our own control. For Clark, lavender could be his own adrenaline, and there would be nothing Clark could do to trigger that within his own consciousness. "'This is all speculation,' I argued. "'We don't know anything right now besides the fact that Clark exists.' "'Very true. Good to note you are a believer of Clark. Sadly, not all agree.' Esbiz looked at me with a weary eye before pulling forth a sword out of his hand. The sword shone in a ray of cool colors, green, purple, and blue streaks of light, coming together to form a blade. "'I can feel in you that you're capable of creating. You have the power which is akin to Clark's power of lavender. Produce a sword for me. Create a sword from nothingness.' James Du Bois and Esbiz watched, waiting for the sword that I was demanded to create. I closed my eyes and thought about the sword, just like I had with the bullets. I could picture the sword in my head with closed eyes, and when I opened my eyes, I could feel a physical hilt. I looked down to see my own blade made of white, gray, and red lines of light or energy. I wasn't sure how I had made them, but yet here I was. I had Helena Price's sword in my bag. For some reason, it could fit in my bag. But this sword seemed light as a feather and as deadly as any sword I knew. The hilt was shielded by a massive guard while the lines moved with flare. Exactly, Esbiz smiled. What's your name, sir? Among all of the hubbub, I forgot to ask you what you're titled. Sidney Mercer. I am Dean Esbiz, as I'm sure you're aware. Esbiz raised his sword up slowly. Now, and God. Esbiz ran up to me and I immediately backed the fuck up. Esbez's sword ran past me, and it was already evident that Esbez was an academic and not a swordsman. This meant that it would be easier to defeat Esbez and prove that I was the man he had predicted so long ago. I countered, although Esbez was very lucky to block my attack. We went at it for a couple more minutes. Esbez's robed body covered in sweat while I had barely pushed myself into cardiovascular exercise. Minutes more passed, but Esbez finally placed his sword down to the floor where it evaporated. My own sword followed suit. Esbiz continued to look at me as though he was trying to decide what piece of me qualified me for his reading. But I knew, as I think he did, that I was a perfect fit. Don't ask me how I knew. I just felt like everything I had experienced so far was coming to a singularity, and that was me. Regardless of whether I was experiencing the story as Clark King in real life or that everything was supposed to happen as such, I was here now. Come now. Esbiz moved the hallway outside of his office as Du Bois and I trailed after him. Sydney, you've proven yourself worthy of the psychic readings I have read. Esbiz, Du Bois, and I moved right next door to what I assumed was a planetarium. There was enough audience seating for a good hundred people, while the entire ceiling was indeed decked out with a projector system. Esbiz turned on the projector, which flickered before revealing Gignosco. I kid you not, a large map came to life, and it was filled with small rock collections i could see the familiarity of my journey blade desert the capital of cultura city feral mountains and the awakening jungle but these were small pieces in the vast world of gignosco above us were more rock collections while below us lay more as well each direction from where i stood continued and continued into the infinite as i started to realize just how vast gignosco was let me explain Gignosco on a scale which most of Gignosco's inhabitants are not aware of. Esbes muttered, The academics of the world have divided Gignosco into three realms. The Inner Realm, the Middle Realm, and the Outer Realm. We are currently in the Inner Realm, and let me show you what the Inner Realm composes of. Esbiz moved his little laser and circled a small piece of Gignosco. I noticed that in his circling part of the inner realm, Esbiz included all of the land I had visited and a couple other places south of my journey. I'll color the other two realms, Esbiz explained. The inner realm remained outlined by a series of orange colorations while the middle realm turned purple and the outer realm turned red. The room's screen continued swirling to showcase the three-dimensionality of Gignosco. The Middle Realm is highly uninhabited and is only inhabited from people who have left the Inner Realm. There are no cities or towns, there are just spaces and biomes. The Outer Realm is the largest and is uninhabited and widely unexplored. To even get to the tips of the Outer Realm would require months of work and journey. Surviving out there would be next to impossible. Thankfully, technology has mapped a lot of Gignosco, even though the sad thing is, Gignosco continues to expand. Slowly and surely, more land occurs, even though we humans and other life forms are but just one part of this world. I didn't know whether or not i could read into this but i decided to do so could the small inner realm represent the subconscious that clark king was aware of while the outer realm represented the vast amount of experiences stories in life that clark king never remembered never experienced or ignored how come i had landed perfectly within the neon forest was i meant to walk through clark king's entire life story through this subconsciousness metaphorical realm Ignosco was large, perhaps its own universe like the Milky Way. How was I supposed to find Clark King within all of this while surviving to tell the tale? Well granted, nobody would know of this tale. As always, work was kept locking key in my mind. I wondered how my own subconscious handled my life. No doubt there would be not a lot of civilization in my own head. So where do you think Clark is within all of this? I questioned. The map above had a small blue dot for our current location. I looked to see the rest of the Inner Realm. There were some really large lands in the South. I didn't know too much about the South and put that on my list to ask Dean Esbiz about. There are differing opinions on the location of Clark, but the theory which I believe, and most of my colleagues believe, is that Clark is here in the Inner Realm, Esbiz muttered. He created the Inner Realm and is the only location which is inhabited. Clark would want to watch after its creation, but we have done so much, looked so hard. Clark has yet to be found within Gignosco, no? Clark has yet to be found within the inner realm, let alone the unexplorable vastness. What are the chances that Clark is in the middle or the outer realm? I think very minimal. Clark would not want to be so far away from the power of lavender and its effect. Interesting, I sighed. Where do you think Clark is at? "'That's the thing. I've run out of ideas,' Esbiz sighed. "'Have you seen anything which has given Clark away?' "'Back when I was in Three Wise Monkeys Rock, I found a small lavender plant. "'I wondered if it was a sign or something. I I just couldn't figure it out, though.' "'Interesting,' Esbiz nodded. "'There are rumors that Clark would surround himself with the plant lavender "'because of the fact that it is the namesake of his energy, "'but one lavender plant wouldn't indicate Clark.' "'but there isn't anything within the inner realm "'which has played into that. "'There are no fields of lavender within the inner realm.' "'Where should I look for the existence of Clark?' "'I questioned. "'I was told earlier by the king "'that word about lavender spreads in the south.' (laughs) "'The south?' (laughs) "'Esbiz chuckled. "'Of course it was spread in the chaos of the south. "'That's your lead then, is it? "'To travel into the south?' "'I don't want to just travel to the south on a whim.' I muttered. That's playing with fire from the sound of it. (laughs) The South is much more (laughs) unconventional than the North, Esbiz explained, as I couldn't help but chuckle. I met the savages of Blade Desert. I was almost killed off by two of these eaters. Spent a day at Identitas Village and at the colony in the North. (laughs) How much unconventional can the South be? You'd be surprised, sadly, Dean Esbiz sighed. At least the savages, individuals, and the ants of the colony keep to their small little worlds. In the South, there's a lot more depravity, a lot more insane, evil people. You'll meet some of them, no doubt, when you head South. Eaters are everywhere, though. You'll need to watch out regardless of which direction you're in. I've already been told to avoid shifty people who bleed yellow cheese curds, I sighed. Still didn't prepare me, though. Some eaters have mastered social skills, while humans turned into eaters have full advantage of not appearing shifty. But you're right. They all bleed like little cheese trays. That's as good as a sign as you'll get. Dean Esbiz turned to the ceiling. My vision of you is that you will meet Clark. It was confirmed by your words in your sword earlier tonight. A strong individual, both in mind and physicality, will be the one to find Clark. By affirming Clark, you will usher in a new world of Gignosco, a second burst of lavender. You will be the one to push Gignosco, and for that, I will never be able to thank you. Du Bois told me that you yourself could never find Clark, even though you no doubt wanted to. Why were you unable to do this mission? Dean Esbiz did not say anything but pulled back the robe to expose his left leg. I looked down to find that this entire time, Dean Esbiz had only been walking with one leg of flesh. The second leg was a fake prosthesis which was connected to Esbiz's flesh by the upper thigh. I did try and find Clark, Esbiz sighed in a reflection I had forced the man to take, but I was not meant to find him. This leg came from one of the southerners you'll meet soon. I figured it would be best not to harp about Esbiz's leg. I looked one more time at the massive map of Gignosco and remembered that I had a map in my small bag which was still hanging to my backside. If I were to get lost, I hoped I could remember the generalities of Gignosco. "'Thank you for your help,' I nodded, turning to the door of the planetarium. "'I'll take my leave, then.' "'Good luck on your journey,' Dean Esbiz nodded, his eyes filled with white heat. "'I believe you can find Clark. If not you, then... Clearly no one can. Before I was able to depart, James Bois stepped in front of my direct path to the door. As was watched on, sweetness within his expression, and not that of envy. What's up? I asked. I had a couple ideas of why James Bois was cock-blocking my path, but I wanted to hear the words straight from the horse's mouth. I want to come with you, James demanded. I think I'll be more helpful, you know. It's like an asset. I know the area, and I'd be honored to find Clark with you. "'Does your mentor, Dr. Esbiz, approve?' I asked, turning to look at the well-revered Dean. "'I do,' Dr. Esbiz nodded. "'Don't get in Sydney's way, boys. That's all I ask.' "'I promise I won't,' James strongly countered with a sharp nod. "'I'll help Sydney to the end of the mission, doing whatever it takes. "'It would take a lot to find Clark, "'and if the south of this inner realm was even more treacherous, "'I was going to need all the help I could get.'" Chapter Negative 19, Refuge So how do we get south, I asked as we stepped outside of the building where Dean Esbiz resided. James Bois stood next to me, bright-eyed and ready for adventure, but neither of us knew what was coming next. Hell, I didn't even know what the possibilities were or where to find Clark. Even with the maps upon maps, I'd have to look through every piece of rock in the inner realm of Gignosco. Well, where do you want to go? James asked, "The only place south of here, really is, well that I know of, is Gear Castle and the Scrapyards. What's Gear Castle and the Scrapyards?" I asked. "It's not too far from here, but it's this castle filled with hard-working mechanics. They work on a lot of inventions. I guess you could argue that they're the opposite of us. They work with their hands while we work with our minds. Well, I guess that's a start. Where can we go from there? There's a shit ton of places down south. The world is our oyster. I do to go to my place, though. I want to pack a bag. Absolutely. I nodded and followed James throughout the dying sun of Collegium City. The city was indeed now lit up softly with a white neon glow. Students and teachers, which appeared to be the entire population of Collegium City, cycled through their town while others began their nighttime activities. The town's theater was showing off one of the students' plays, while the movie theater was showing off one of the students' movies. Crafts were occurring in groups and ran by student programming boards, while the library was flooded with students. James' dorm was in a large apartment building, although his dorm was more apartment-like than I expected. There was a bedroom, living room, kitchen, and bathroom, all of which were moderately decorated and furnished. There was nothing wildly cool about James Bois's living space. All of it felt pretty standard for a college student. James put on some more clothes and packed a small bag as well. I was surprised to find that James's thong-only attire was mostly for travel and exercise, and that the man could wear proper clothing when needed. Soon we had left Du Bois' place and made our way to the front of the city. I had not seen this part of the city yet, the edge of Collegium City, which outlooked upon the rest of the southern inner realm. Indeed, I could make out the land which I assumed was called Scrapyards and Gear Castle. The land was elevated upward above the Awakening Castle and twisted sideways. It reminded me of when I landed back in Neon Jungle. In the distance, I could make out small details. The Scrapyards looked nothing more than a junkyard filled with grey metallics. Gear Castle moved with spinning gears which, no doubt, had some kind of important structural reasoning behind them, or at least I assumed. Past Gear Castle and the scrapyards was some kind of dark fog, while to my current right-hand side was a wall of rock, which was close to, but did not meld with the wall of rock which had seemingly blocked off the colony and the Thousand Waves Sea from the south. "'Are you ready?' I asked, looking over at Du Bois. I assumed like most people in Gignosco, James had never left his original place. Today would be a big journey for him. I am, the boys nodded. Let's head out. The two of us stepped off the world of the awakening jungle in Collegium City and into the purple colored Greater Nebula. We began walking, supporting ourselves as we slowly elevated so that we would reach the upward, twisted world of Gear Castle and the Scrapyards. We did not originally speak. Although after a long trek of silence and the blossoming into heavy night, I suppose something in me gave way. So why did you want to study spirituality and psychic stuff or whatever? I asked. It's just always been something I've been interested in, the boy shrugged. My parents studied it themselves before they left Collegium City. Why did they leave Collegium City? I inquired, not realizing until after I said it that this could be another can of worms. "'They wanted to travel and see the Middle Realm "'and possibly the Outer Realm,' Du Bois muttered. "'I haven't seen them in 10 years.' "'I'm sorry. That's okay.' "'It wasn't okay, and we both knew that, "'but hell, what else could be said?' "'What do you want to do?' I asked, "'after you finish school.' "'Oh, well, I think I'll always want to be a student "'of some kind,' Du Bois shrugged "'like he didn't need anything else in his life. "'But I guess eventually I'll become a teacher.' That's usually the cycle at Collegium City. Students become teachers. And what do teachers become? Deans. I had to smile at that joke. Is there a topic you're interested in studying or researching? Well, Dean Esbiz is interested in Clark, but I'm more interested in the soul. What about the soul? Well, does the soul exist? What does the soul mean? Is there a dimension past Gignosco? I had heard about experiments done where they had successfully measured the body weight before and after death and found that there was a small missing weight, which would, in their argument, be the soul. In other tests, I've heard of patients who had almost died on the operating table and who had dreams of themselves above their bodies before being sucked back into their bodies. They successfully tested that one too by placing small objects that would only be visible if you were above your body. There was a dimension past Gignoska, but I didn't have the heart to throw Du Bois' life into oblivion. Did anyone besides a true full-on psychopath have the heart to tell a figure who appears to be flesh and blood that he was nothing more than a memory in a world which is nothing but figuration within one human skull? Talk about existentialism. How did I know there was true life on Earth? Was I part of someone else's brain? certainly there were more complexity in the earth than there could be in one human singular mind but gigasco was complex as fuck considering this was all the world of clark king's subconscious interesting i muttered what kind of studies do you want to do on the soul i have a few ideas but i gotta get my doctorate first that'll take another three years ah gotcha We were reaching closer to the scrapyards now. I turned back to find the awakening jungle spread across a large rock. Collegium City was nothing more than a pinprick in the building Dawn. From our current standpoint, the scrapyards had become more defined. The piles of technology and metallics had more shape and texture to them. Computers, televisions, washing machines, dryers, blenders, vacuums, medical machinery, light bulbs and light fixtures, all sorts of metallic beams and scraps littered themselves into a pure floor of material before forming piles. Small beads of human beings were tackling the junkyard, although they were f- too far away to make detail or assumption. Where are you from? Cultura City? No, I'm from Dahlia Village, I told Du Bois. It was not a full-on lie. I had originated in the neon forest on the town's southern brink, but I was far from telling the truth. Oh, I've actually heard of that place. heard it's filled with children and it's kind of sheltered. Everything is sheltered in Gagnosco and for good reason, I sighed. If you don't shelter yourself, your family, your friends, and town, you could be taken over by savages, ants who sacrifice for their god, killed so you fit in, or taken by an eater for their own survival. That makes you question why you even bother to be more than worth considering if you try and become something, you'll be destroyed dark but understandable you must have questioned it all i asked my mind flashing with rodney and helena specifically you must have wondered what's the point because sometimes there is a clear lack of a point life isn't about making points then what is life about freedom happiness finding your specific needs within the broad spectrum which life provides that seems like a lot of bullshit no offense bullshit is a common experience in the chess of life life is now chess well, Sydney, we begin life in a single file line before we're pulled to certain locations, some because we have to and others because we need to. We fight the evil side all our life in the hopes that we can overcome it. We take down evil. Evil takes down us. Life ends in two ways. We defeat evil and soon the board clears or evil defeats us. We die and the board clears as well. Either way, the board is cleared and reset. Maybe we're reincarnated or maybe the board is meant for someone else. You thought about that metaphor. Just slightly, Du Bois admitted, but it's basically how we all get through life. So what do the pieces stand for? Whatever you want them to be, values or vices, Du Bois continued clearly on a roll with his metaphor. Pawns are your secondary values and vices, little things that add to your character and life but do not fully define it. Unless, of course, they evolve into bigger characters and then they become important. Your rooks, bishops, and knights, and they're more important than pawns. They can make quick moves and are most likely to take out your opposition. Your queen is your top virtue or vice. What is the reason that you are driven upon the board? Your king is your bigness weakness. Whether that be virtue or vice as well. What brings you down? What will be the last stone, the last needle, the last bullet? Sometimes the queen and king are the same other times they are different what happens if you're evil do you fight against good yeah most people think they're good or if anything indifferent if you do not feel good you most likely aren't i didn't want to fight with du bois on that one even though i never felt good but wouldn't wholly classify myself as bad so where are you in your chess game not shallow but not deep you I didn't even think this metaphor applied to me, considering I was quite the neutral life. A life not many would live, but a life filled with adventure and story. I was a Hollywood cinema, full of flashes and lights, but not much depth. After all, with a movie, how deep were you expecting to go when you only have an hour and a half in time? Same I think. The conversation trailed off there, whether naturally or unnaturally was up for grabs I suppose. Finally, the scrapyards were just to our left-hand side. I moved my feet, one by one, to touch down. The world shifted a bit. It did not feel as though I had readjusted my direction, it just felt like I had slipped into new shoes. It felt like I was normally walking, and the views I had readjusted to echoed that mentality. Gearcastle Castle was to my right-hand side. A bit of a walk, but upon the same rock of the scrapyards. Across the way, the rock which had divided the north and the south was cubed like a rolled piece of canvas. I could not see what was inside, sadly. From this view, I could see what looked to be a beautiful metal far above. Sheep and a couple shacks inhabited the space, but here my feet were stepping on broken appliances and twisted metal. Here we are, I sighed, looking around and finally gazing at the inhabitants of the scrapyard. A majority of the scrapyard inhabitants were male, although there were some females among them. They all wore some kind of construction-like gear, with bright orange and yellow to stand out among the grey and black. Their helmets came with lights while their feet were protected by boots. Before I could study the people more, Clark King returned. Interning for the technology firm had given me the ability to find my future, and college would accelerate and bring me to that future. But of course, I wanted to create cash revenue. My father was helping me pay for college. I was his only child, and he was without a wife, but I wanted to help. And so I'd work weekends down at a garage not too far away from my house. With working at the same technology firm during the summer and by working in the garage, I made enough money to buy necessities I wanted without appealing to my father. My work at the garage supplemented my computer science studies. From 9 to 5, Monday through Friday, I did what I wanted to do in the future. But on the weekends, I did what I could with my skill sets for money. Back then, I could make quite the pretty penny. But I loved the weekends at the garage. It was easier i had to be there at seven in the morning but i'd be gone at two in the afternoon with cash in my pockets over the three years i worked there i became close with the staff while getting a good hand on cars cars was not my forte but learning to do low-key master car technology was helpful it proved to me that i had the tenacity to do whatever i desired and the skill sets to morph my power so the way I was understanding it was that The Scrap Yards was about his experiences working computers while working on cars. Indeed, I could see the car pieces and parts within the rubbish. "'What's going on here?' I asked, turning to the man next to me. "'We're working,' the man scoffed like I had asked some stupid-ass question. "'Who are you?' "'I'm Sydney. I added, an introduction not worthy of a royal individual. "'I'm Paddy. "'Good to meet you, Paddy. "'Same with you.' Patty shrugged as he turned off his lamp on his head. What are you doing here? Just passing through, James said, and I looked at him with a slight twisted eye. Well, you should visit Gear Castle, no doubt, Patty added. You're visitors, after all. You might be able to meet the governor. Who's the governor? The leader of Gear Castle and other scrapyards. He's the one who runs the logistics of this land. The governor is well respected and loved. He's both kind and is excellent at what he does. Well, that sounds good then. James nodded. We'd love to see him. Let me take it to him. Patty had quickly gone from skepticism to tourist delight as he began walking towards Gear Castle. The gears built into the castle continued spinning away without a worry. He's a good guy. He loves when we give visitors. We haven't had any in a while, of course. But so, what do you do here? I questioned, while James flinked my side like a Labrador waiting for a frisbee to be tossed into the air. Oh, that's simple. Patty shrugged. This land is naturally filled with metallic trash and scrap. Did someone place it here? Oh, no. It's all natural. Oh. On Earth, none of this would have been naturally collected, but I wasn't on Earth, was I? So... Gear Castle was built by the governor, who decided to turn this land into a business. We spend our days and nights collecting and shifting through the natural sites, we've created piles of similarities. In Gear Castle, we then fix up the creations or dismantle them before selling them to our clients. The funding we create then is split evenly all the way down the line. We have small homes with the foundation or surroundings of Gear Castle, where our own city, our own society, our own refuge. So did you always live here? No. I've only gotten here in the last six or seven years, Patty explained. This place has been here for a while, though. But I was living in Cultura City, and I just hated it. I was looking for a way out, and this was definitely the way to go. I love machinery. I wanted a small community, and I wanted protection. It's so hard to find protection here in Gignasco. There's so many independent contractors who just want to reap human life for a reward. So Gear Castle is one of the few places in the South that actually is decent. Who could forget Patty? He was the kind of guy who would make anyone feel welcome. Smart guy, too. Wasn't the type to go to college, but he did an excellent job around the garage. I attended his funeral, which took place in my 30s, and you would have been shocked to see the crowd. Patty had many people who came out to see him in passing. He affected so many people a lot more than Patty would have guessed. Patty was yet another exact copy of someone from Clark King's reality who became painted within his subconscious fantasy. Patty, do you believe in Clark? I asked, while James' face opened up in surprise. James knew my intent while Patty immediately did not. For sure, Patty nodded. It's hard to imagine this all just happened without some higher force. What do you ask? I'm just curious. The outer realm of Gear Castle was filled with the small ranch-style homes which stood next to each other. The land had melded from the naturally occurring technological pile to some kind of rustic ground. The houses were simple, appearing and seemed quite middle class. Even with the slightly archaic-looking pile of metallic shit and the workers, which looked like they were searching for blood diamonds, their living quarters were pretty impressive. Gear Castle's small wall was not divisive, but was firm. The castle exhumed an atmosphere that seemed inclusive to all. We walked through the large wall and into the compound of Gear Castle. The gears create enough energy to naturally sustain us, Patty shrugged. Pretty impressive, right? The bovine gears were cut precisely into the foundation and seemed to spin with impressive accuracy, considering the building they were a part of was for operational purposes. There were a few more houses within the compound, all of them slightly larger. Those larger houses were first ones built for the originals. I took that to be that the originals was slaying for the first to join the governor within Gear Castle. We moved past the houses as the large castle swallowed us up. There were no guards or overt fanciness to be seen. In fact, Patty brought us right to the front door of Gear Castle while Clark dropped another vague comment. There it was, that beautiful dirty garage. Come now, Patty whispered, let's take you to see the governor. Chapter Negative 20, Refuge 2. The interior of Gear Castle was indeed more like a garage than a living space. Men and women were still dressed up in their construction gear uniforms, the norm of the premises. However, these inside workers were inspecting parts of the living machine that the castle was. Many of the rooms, which did not contain doors but instead contained equipment such as boilers, coolers, and shit that I couldn't tell from where I was at, but... Patty was walking us quickly through the premises, although he did acknowledge the majority of those he came across. The employees seemed to be all on the same page, and Gear Castle did seem to be a great place to live and a good place to work. Paddy moved us through the actual doored room, which turned out to be a living quarters. It was the first part of Gear Castle which seemed clearly inhabited. The decor was simple with beige, gray, and dark timber green accents. The windows revealed the nearby cliff edge of the land which Gear Castle resided upon. To the right of the windows, one could see a strip of land which had been utilized to create a small airport. No doubt the airport had been created to trade goods with those within Gignosco. The view from this living space included what appeared to be a dark fog, the go-kart track I had seen a while back in the Neon Forest, which was also slightly in view, as well as some kind of golden piece in the far distance, which could be another city. Oh, do we have visitors? A voice cried out to Patty, James, and I. The three of us turned, each looking at a different element within or outside of the room's windows, and looked to the figure who had called out to us. His hair was black and slick, with gel which made it look shower-wet as it casually slicked itself backwards onto his brow. The governor's smile and eyes were genuine and filled with passion. He wore a white button-up, which had two open buttons to reveal rich, black chest hair, which was not obnoxious, but natural there were dimples in the crooks of his smile stubborn which seemed refreshing and nuanced if i had to guess what profession he was i'd argue politics a fine business i had no uncertainty about the man's identity i was looking at the governor we do boss patty nodded this is sydney and his friend i'm james james added having never introduced himself to patty some of the norms within gagnoska would not fly in earth To not introduce one member of another within a party of three seemed ludicrous, but here, different standards were held. Sydney and James, the governor repeated, his breath growing with vigor and his body flushed with our welcome. I'm the governor, and I've been blessed to run these lands. We hope you have been enjoying your trip to Gear Castle. We don't get too many people around here because we are a business, but I take it you've seen the scrapyards and a majority of Gear Castle through your trip here. We can get you a tour, or perhaps you'd like some rest. Where did you come from? We came from Collegium City, I explained. I've been traveling a lot further than Collegium City, though. Oh my! You must rest! The governor's voice was a mix of British professionalism with Southern American posh. The governor seemed to be a binary between redneck hillbillies and boss sophistication. Let's get you rooms and you can decide what's best. Maybe get some sleep or maybe tour the grounds. Regardless, I'd love to have you for dinner later tonight with my wife, Sentra. I love picking the brains of my guests. Good conversation and story always make a man like me happy. Patty, if you'd like to go back to work, I can take care of the accommodations for our guests. Yeah, boss. Patty nodded before shaking my hand and then James. I hope to run into you again during your time here. I've so enjoyed spending time discussing things with you. Absolutely. I did like Patty, perhaps due to Clark King's small explanation of Patty. Thank you, Patty. Without another pause or word, Patty exited the chambers of the governor. The governor took us from the living quarters to a hallway. "'Gear Castle is less of a castle, and more of a plant,' the governor chuckled, his jokes rolling off his tongue like the wind. "'This building is the main part of the operation. I just happen to live here. We have a couple guest suites down the other end. Let me show you my office. I think you'll like the room.' The governor opened a door, to which led to a room, which was his office. Similar to his living quarters, the office room had no indication of being next to a gear-grinding building. Its thematics were gray, beige, and forest green, while the room's window now overlooked the airstrip and the four parked planes by the strip. I scanned the governor's office quickly, but did not see anything suspicious or out of place. I didn't believe the governor was bad. He seemed like a nice man, but I was prone to be on my guard within Gignosco. The airstrip is pretty popular for deliveries, the governor added. You probably use the main hallway to get here, but off the main hallway, we have four large processing rooms. In those rooms, we take inventory of the natural resources we've unearthed before building them again or otherwise stripping them down. We look at orders that come in and customize what we are making for those orders. Oh, goodness. I promise to show you to your rooms. The governor ushered us back to the hallway and closed the door to his office before leading us down to the other end of the hallway. We passed a few machines, which were operating normally, while providing a soft ambient hum. Finally, the governor opened another door, which revealed a small two-bedded space akin to a hotel room. There was a kitchenette, a small living room, and a bathroom, along with the two separate beds. Take some time and rest the governor explained. "'I'll call for you around in a time. If you need to help, use the phone to call our cleaning and home staff for Gear Castle. They'll be happy to do anything.' The governor closed the door to our room, sealing James and I inside. "'Oh, shit. I forgot to ask about Clark,' I sighed. "'If anyone around here is going to know anything, it would be the governor.' "'What do you think of him?' "'He seems genuine,' I nodded. "'This place seems homey. A lot of locations I visited had some kind of problem or evil.' But this place seems peaceful, just like Collegium City and the Awakening Jungle. This is probably going to be the best settlement within the South, James added in reflection as he sat down on the bed with a sigh. Shit, we're not going to get rooms like this anywhere else, are we? Probably not, I smiled as I landed on my own bed. Take the time to properly rest, then. James fell asleep within minutes, as if waiting for the entire time to do so. I, meanwhile, was wrestling with my continual reflection on Gignasco. Clark King joined me for a quick spell. Guy was the leader of the garage. He was the manager and owner, over 40 years of age, but he always looked to be about 20. He always looked like a greaser, stripped from the outsiders. His body was constantly covered in oil and grease from the cars he worked on. People liked Guy because he was fair, both with employees and customers. He never charged obnoxious rates, never sold someone something they didn't need. He was a kind man with a tough backbone. But, you know, God would go to war for you if you needed him. Loyalty was key to him. Sadly, loyalty would be the thing to ruin Gov. Gov. Governor. I suppose the connection was like that of Patty's. Simple and applicable. As James DuBois had immediately fallen asleep, I took some time to think about my progress and journey throughout Gignosco. I couldn't believe that I had made it out of certain situations alive, such as being chased down in the desert by a group of savages or not being killed by Dr. Roscoe back in Max How I survived and defeated Marie Gay in the Feral Mountains, managed to tear down the individuals and escape an explosion in the colony was all mystical to me as well. Was well, this part of the personalized story Clark King was trying to give me? Did every step in every rock formation come with a written explanation? I had already missed out on a few of the inhabited and inner realm rocks. Was there stories or experiences that I was missing out on? What about the middle realm and the outer realm? Were there important experiences there or were those just filler rocks in their asteroid belt atmospheres? Was Clark's subconscious purposely keeping me alive? I was amazed that one human mind could produce so much. It produced the locations, the visuals, the fantasy and reality mixed together and stewed like fine soup. This world was larger than life. The map Dean Esbiz showed had been overwhelming. How had Clark King lived and experienced all of this? I was asking myself variants of this question until I fell asleep. But it was one of those naps where I felt awake. I knew I was sleeping, aware of it as though lucid. But my consciousness was dimmed so low that I was basically unconscious. Visions of both this world and my own collided like car accidents, shrapnel, twisted flaming metal went haywire and I couldn't tell what was real anymore until finally I could hear knocking of the door. I immediately came back to life and realized I was still in my bed. On the bed next to mine, James Bois was peacefully sleeping while the window revealed a darkened purple sky. The knocking sound continued while I stood up and walked to the door. I opened it to reveal the governor, who was smiled with a slight amount of basking light. Oh, Oh, goodness, I didn't mean to wake you up, the governor sighed with honey tea voice. I'm sorry. It's okay. I'm assuming you're here to grab us for dinner. Yes, I am, the governor chuckled, and the staff went all out for the two of you. I woke James up. The two of us quickly made ourselves presentable while the governor silently watched like a parent figure. Soon we made our way across the hallway with the governor taking the lead. We re-entered the living room, which Patty had dropped James and I off at. We moved past the spacious, well decorated living room and entered the dining room. The dining room was merely just a table with chairs, but the table was filled with food, two bottles of wine, and a couple tabletop decorations. Already seated was a woman with red as blood hair, which was shoulder length. She wore a black dress which hugged her tight body, black eyeliner bolded her eyes, while her whole appearance was coated on sex. Sentra is my wife! The governor explained as I extended my hand for a handshake with her. Sentra's own hand lingered on my own in some weird sexual manner. Sentra, these are our guests, Sydney and James. Excellent to meet you, Sentra whispered, proving once again that awkward word choice was a common occurrence within Gignasca. Sit down with us, please. The governor, James, and I sat down with Sentra at the table filled with smoldering foods. What's cooking tonight, love? The governor demanded to know. The staff made an excellent chicken marsala, a delicious angel hair pasta with beautiful spicing and Maria's homemade marinara sauce, a salad, breadsticks, and those vegetable skewers with citrus infusion. Centra explained with a chuckle. Some of your favorites, Mr. Governor. Thankfully, my mouth had yet to be filled with food because I would have normally almost gagged at such a comment. Mr. Governor, everyone dig in. The governor smiled as he filled up a glass of red wine for Sentra. Boys, do you prefer white wine? I'm afraid Sentra goes through so much red wine around here that we're currently without any of the table. Well, besides the one for Sentra. White wine is fine, I nodded, as Sentra laughed as she accepted the glass of wine from her husband. (laughs) He's right, Sentra admitted before taking a long imbibe of her weakness. I go through it heavily around here. It's just your preference, babe. The governor smiled as he filled three wine glasses with the large amount of available white wine. We all have our thing, don't we, boys? Everyone dig in and help yourselves to the food, otherwise it's going to go cold. I grabbed enough food to feed a village and went to town. I couldn't remember the last time I had eaten, but then again, I didn't have to eat in Gagnasco, considering I was nothing more than an imposed thought within the brain of Clark King. So, governor... I asked after trying the delicious skewer of vegetables doused with citrus flavor. Random question, but it's part of the reason I'm coming through these parts. Do you believe in Clark? Clark? The governor spoke the word as though it was a long-lost childhood friend to which he was trying to recall specific information about. Why I suppose I do, because I, I, I go by the logic of why not believe. I think it's easier to believe than to not believe. Because what do you lose if you believe and it doesn't happen? You lose more if you don't believe and Clark exists. I do look out to the beautiful natural scrapyards and have to believe some great force was behind it. I do find that some great force has led me to conceive of this community. Does Clark have something to do with you guests being here? James and I are looking for Clark. I explained. Rumor has it that he is the physical form of one man and that his energy, Lavender, is what set Gignasco in motion. (laughs) So you're on a fool's quest, the governor clarified to a small chuckle from Sentra. Mr. Governor, come now. They're clearly doing what they believe in. They're of the same brand of you after all, Sentra chuckled as she cut into her chicken breast. You should appreciate their passion for the mission. You're right, and if I'm a believer, then I shall believe in Sidney and James. Damn right, Sandra smiled, turning to address James and I. I find you two to be quite noble. I wish the best for both of you. Thank you, I grinned. We can use the prayers. Sandra took another sip of her wine while the forks and knives clicked around the fine china became the only soundtrack to our dinner. Finally, conversation picked itself back up. So, honey, how was your day? Sentra inquired, pulling out the usual spousal tactics to regain originality. Nothing too crazy! The governor shrugged as he bit into a small amount of chicken coated with pasta. Everything went especially smooth today. All the reports were coming in clean. We sent a few planes of shipments out today, and we actually went down on consumption and energy while going up on production and revenue. Oh, that's delicious! Sentra giggled. Sounds like you had a glad day. "'What about you, my love?' "'I read a little bit of my book, "'did some exercise in the gym facility, cleaned the place up a bit "'and watched a little bit of television. "'There's this new show airing tonight "'that I thought we could watch.' "'Beautiful. Can't wait!' "'The governor turned over to James and I. "'Did you enjoy your day? "'I assumed you slept from the time "'I dropped you off and then picked you up.' "'You're right, and it was enjoyable,' I smiled. "'We're very happy to stay with you. "'This place is certainly amicable.' I suppose we have to figure out where to go next. Well, where do you think Clark is? Sentra looked quite curious at our mission. We think he resides in the south, I answered. Otherwise, we know nothing. (laughs) You best be careful down there, the governor sighed. The south is wild. We got some nasty critters and humans who scuffle around in an effort to follow through on their personal agenda. You'll be eaten up, imprisoned, sexually modified, or any of the other horrible things which can happen down there. In the South, you need thick skin. I've been through a lot of terrible situations within the North, I argued. I think I can handle the South. <clears throat> The south is more akin to our animal instincts, and the north they all act sophisticated and established. Which they are, but Cultura City is the capital of Gignosco, but you know, hell, ask any human who wants guaranteed protection and civilization, they go there, no questions asked. But they do put up a facade, don't they? Humans aren't meant to be demigod figures, although I do believe we should try our best. People down here, they think of the present and not of the future. They don't see the world as good or bad, they see it as an instinct for survival. I did indeed relate to the governor's summary of the South as a survivalist state. I didn't have too much time to absorb the message as the governor continued following up another large bite of food. Gignosco is, as you've experienced, no doubt, an interesting universe. There are a series of different species with the capacity of speech and reason. But the species differ on what the meaning of life is, what the goals of an individual should be. But even then, within species, there are multiple splits in such interpretations as well. There is not one coda for human experience, nor for the experience in the minds of those capable of defining their life experience isn't that crazy to think we can't agree on even the simple boundaries the governor's statement did not finish itself as Sentra's right hand immediately hit the table the sound was so sharp and boomed full blast. The three of us men turned to face Sentra, who seemed to be clutching the table for support. We were confused, but the confusion would not be departing anytime soon. Sentra leaned back in her chair, throwing her head back like a tossed beach towel. The governor immediately stood up and ran to his wife's side. His face panicked and filled with adrenaline. Sentra, Sentra, Sentra. He panicked as he clutched his wife's face and shoulders in an effort to stir her. It was a painful thing to witness, but I suppose it was just part of the natural reaction of the situation. But there was nothing which could be stopped nor changed. The action was written out into stone. Sentra was dead. The next half hour felt like a rushed episode of Law and Order, as security immediately assessed the scene and took notes. Soon the governor, flanked with armed security, led us back to our room. "'I do not think that either of you are responsible for the death of Suntra. The governor's normal docile voice had become soured. Not sour with the two of us, but most likely the death of his lover. "'But in order for this investigation to go smoothly, I need the two of you to remain in your room. My security team will be running investigations, and you will surely be notified when you can leave the room.' I will be placing guards in the hallway for the protection of everyone. I was hearing a completely different statement from the governor. He did not trust anyone, and we would be like others under investigation. The door closed behind us as the governor and his charge left James and I in our room. What the hell happened? James questioned, looking at me with fear. She died. I shrugged. I don't know how, but she did. Do you think she was poisoned? (sighs) It appears so. I sighed, I don't know what happened, but I don't like that we're just assigned to wait here. Well, what do we do? I don't know. Thirty minutes later, James and I could hear voices coming from outside the hallway. The mutterings were soft, floating into the room like sea foam upon the beach were the words which popped from their original bubble form into a spray, which made the ground wet with intrigue. James and I made our way to the door to hear snippets of the conversation. They believed the two guests killed her. "'The governor doesn't know what to think. He's borderline hysterical, I heard. "'Let us know in the next hour if we put these two in jail.' "'Sounds good, man. Apparently these two are looking for Clark. I bet they're crazy.' With each overheard comment, the case continued stacking up against us. I was becoming increasingly worried about what was going to happen. James looked so scared that he backed away from the door and ran over to his bed. His skin flared with goosebumps and raised hair. "'Listen,' I whispered to him as we moved from the door. "'We need to get out of here and find the governor.' We need to get him to understand we didn't do it. If we can't convince him, or if it goes south, we need to escape. Escape? How will we escape? James hissed in a naturally defensive maneuver as he held his thin body tight. I don't think he assumed this adventure would play out the way he did. Perhaps James thought we'd be strolling through the clandestine jungle, but within different dangerless biomes? He was an idiot for such an assumption, but all the while lovable. He was an academic at heart, not a warrior, not an athlete. He would not make it for one day on my job. James was the kind of man who couldn't put a bullet through someone's head. He'd be killed before he could kill. People fell into two camps on this one. I would always and successfully kill people before being killed. In this case, I wouldn't kill the guards, merely just take them out from behind. But it was gonna look guilty that we had escaped, but it would look more so guilty to leave a pile of blood behind us. James considered life to be just, and I wonder what kind of movement this would be. Perhaps his major values would be confronted in our clandestine escape, and his queen piece would have to take on a major piece against him. Well, in this situation, against us. Or maybe this was his weakness, a powerless king who would be pitted in checkmate. I tucked my bag behind my shirt where it snugly fit against my skin. I would not be using my gun for this mission. ''You need to stay behind me. Follow me and don't do anything to jeopardize this mission,'' I explained, in a slightly threatening tone. ''Got it?'' James nodded but remained silent, no doubt still shocked into oblivion. I took that as compliance and decided to go forth with my mission. My first stop would be the governor's residency up along the hallway. I opened the door to find five guards within the hallway. Thankfully, the hallway was dimly lit, and there was plenty of cover behind the variety of machines, which made a normal residence hallway a small obstacle course filled with cover. These guards were stupid to not be directly at our door. Instead, they seemed to be walking up and down the hallway as if they were at some kind of art gallery. The security for Gear Castle would never be hired back in my agency. Already, they were proving to be sloppy. I closed the door behind me, still unnoticed. One guard was coming our way, and so we waited behind a large humming machine until the guard came close by. I took him out by holding him back. His body slowly fell to the floor, one down. The four guards were all enjoying their conversation, all with their backs turned to James and I's door. She then had the audacity to say I was trying choking her out. I didn't try choking her out. She placed my hand on her throat and pressed up against it. Well, at least she's not doing anything to you, bro. Fuck, I mean, the bitch wanted of her own accord, the first cried out in a normal male attitude. Eh, she's just bitching because she has a bros, the third added. This conversation seemed to mimic a conversation between mechanics at a garage, or at least what I stereotyped a conversation would be like at a masculine profession with a majority male employee base. The attention to detail in the mind of Clark King would never be fully understood. The fourth member finally came towards me, and I took him out. The other three remained clueless to the vanishment of their duo. The conversation ceased after a while, and I decided to quickly take the opportunity to finish them out. A third passed by James and I as we hid behind a large gear. Like the first two, the median security figure was quick to go. Finally, with just two security guards left, they began to question what had happened to their peers. James and I were very close to the governor's apartment suite. But it would be easier to finish off the guards now than later. Dude, where's Rick, Dan, and Ian? The one who had been complaining about choking a girl asked. I don't know, the second guard shrugged. Can I go down to one of the corridors? With a quick whip, I managed to tackle both of the guards down within two seconds. The two guards both tried pulling out their guns, but using my superior skill, I managed to stop both of them before they were able to strike. I punched them both for a few times until they were groaning and unable to continue. I wanted the longest time possible, so I quickly choked them out so they'd sleep for at least 20 minutes. Finally, with the hallway cleared, James and I entered the living quarters of the governor. But lights were drawn so low that it was almost impossible to navigate. But through a quick inspection, one could tell the place had been void of life. Even the body of Sentra had been quickly taken by the investigative security. The governor was nowhere to be seen. I thought about where else the governor would be residing. With his wife dead and with his settlement needing his aid, there was probably a possibility that the governor could be in his office. Let's go down the hall, I muttered to a still nervous and frightened James Bois, Maybe the governor is working hard within his office. Chapter negative 21. Hello, Mr. Governor. With the hallway cleared from earlier, James and I went down the hallway to the small office of the governor. We opened the door to reveal a dimmed office with the backlights of the hallway lit up. In the distance, one could make of an early dawn which was beginning to build upward, but it would be a while before it would inherit the sky above. The office was abandoned, but I could not help but look around it. The office was very simple for someone who was in charge of this entire slab of land. It was too neat as if there was a particular interest for the office to appear bland. The shelves and books were filed so neatly, everything was squared away and lined up well. The office looked unused, or as a part of the office was set at the store for view. Do you find this office sketchy? I asked James, who looked around and nodded. It's very underwhelming, James agreed. Do you think something's up? I do. I looked around the room before coming across a small folder. I opened the folder and gasped at the contents. Everything within the folder was the same. A picture, multiple pictures, all shot with high definition and all of them featuring Sentra. But these pictures were not happy-go-lucky. These pictures were incriminating of the governor because they featured in mid sexual pleasure with a man. I cannot tell who the man was, nor would I have recognized the man. However, there was no doubt the evidence in front of us that Sentra was sleeping with a man outside of her husband and that the governor knew about this information. James appeared behind me and immediately gasped at the revelation of the photos. He knew about his wife's affair, I summarized. Don't you think that's enough to kill the bitch? Password recognized. A voice cried out from some abscess of the room. Both James and I looked around to find the source, although we were confused. The soft voice had opened a crack within the bookcases to reveal a small elevator. Are you kidding me? James gasped. This is fucked up. There's a secret elevator? And the password seems to be kill the bitch, I muttered. That's fucked too. James and I put ourselves into the slightly tight space and hit the only button upon the elevator. With a quick one-two, the elevator closed and lowered itself. I wasn't sure where we were going, but the best bet I had was that we were going far beneath Gear Castle. Why had I known the password? It was another sign that Clark King's subconscious was making things easy for me. About a half minute of travel, the elevator slowed down and came to a soft pause. The elevator doors opened up to reveal a large layer, which was shaped like a hangar. Indeed, part of the room featured a runway and a small black jet that lay on the far side of the runway. The far ends of the rectangular space were open and revealed the still dark sky of Gignosco. The hangar was dimly lit and empty. No doubt this hangar was a private affair, but it was not just a hangar. Across the way was a large desk filled with a shit-ton of papers. There was a large computer on the desk, currently sitting in sleep mode. On the wall behind the desk was a series of computer monitors, all flashing with different visions of Gear Castle and the scrapyards. Basically the 16 large television monitors were security system designed to spy on every last corner of the slab of rock. No doubt the governor wanted to act more like a god than a governor. Shit, he's been watching everything, I sighed. That's why he had the photos of Sentra. Fuck, do you think he's crazy? Without my response, the monitors all flickered the same collection of footage involving James and I escaping from our room, taking down the guards, entering and leaving the governor's living quarters before entering his office. My senses quickly went into attack mode as I looked for the governor, who I knew was somewhere nearby. Before I could locate the man, a series of bullets rang out. I ducked down, but James was too slow, and a bullet slugged into his shoulder. James cried out in heavy pain as I crawled behind the governor's desk. "'Governor!' I screamed throughout the hangar. "'Stop this immediately!' "'Oh, how funny!' the governor chuckled. "'I could have said the same thing about you taking out my guards, "'but then I realized how perfect your little ruse was. "'Leaving those bodies like that makes you look more guilty than I!' "'Why would you kill your wife?' I asked as I watched the governor move close to us. He had been hiding in the shadows of the jet black plane, "'and now was fully revealed even in the demure lighting. "'Yeah, she cheated on you.' But what was the purpose of killing her? You could have just divorced her or worked it out. She was my everything besides Gear Castle. She was the living thing I loved, and I had brought her to the inanimate thing I was passionate for. But there is no love in non-human beings, at least not true romantic togetherness for which Sentra and I vowed to one another over marriage. I am a very open man, but I will not tolerate such acts of betrayal. The governor was moving closer to his desk while James was holding onto his bleeding shoulder with his uninjured arm. I didn't have too long to think about what was going to happen next. So you had to kill her. I played into it, trying to stall out the situation. Everything in life that betrays must go. Shame I had to be the one to betray you. I promise normally I'm quite the nice guy, but I just needed your power of distraction. What do you mean? Sydney and James our newfound guests. We haven't had guests in a while. At least not since I found out Centra was nothing but a common whore. I knew with guests in the house I could easily stage a murder and set you up for it. Your motive would be unclear, because why would you want to kill Centra? But it became even better when, after I administered the poison, you admitted to be looking for Clark. Oh, Spiritual extremists who were crazy. Crazy enough to kill my beloved. Oh, it was perfect. Everything was perfect.' Even now you're setting it up so that you become the scapegoat of my murder. It's a brilliant plot, is it not? I didn't expect you to be so easily pinned down. But now that I have you here, I'll just finish the job.' The governor was close to his desk and was preparing to shoot. I had my gun out too, but I didn't know how I was going to score the advantage. With the governor close to the desk, I popped out behind him and immediately went to disarm him. The two of us struggled, and both of our guns went flying. Instead of retrieving our guns, the two of us went into fisticuffs. The fight continued as we pummeled into one another and defended our own bodies from their respective blows. James continued bleeding out behind the desk, and I wondered how I was going to get out of this one. Interestingly enough, in order to save his skin, he would have to reveal his top secret layer beneath Gear Castle, but I suppose losing full secrecy was better than being charged with the murder of his wife. But then again, perhaps people knew of the governor's lair. The only way out, it seemed, would be to use the governor's black jet, which beckoned to be utilized for a proper escape. The fight continued until I managed to overwhelm the governor to the point where he laid on the ground as a sweaty mess. I've got the upper hand, I roared. Now stop this and maybe I'll consider letting you go free. Consider letting me go free. <laughs> you forgot who runs these lands. I'm the governor, after all. You're a man who used his position of power to do good and great things, but then sacrificed all of that by killing your wife. Why don't you try and sympathize with me? would not you be driven to rage if your wife cheated on you? "'I did not have the energy to tell the governor "'that I was asexual and void of emotions. "'At least both these remain true outside of Gignosco. "'Instead, I shook my head. "'I'm sorry, Mr. Governor. "'The road ends here,' I argued. "'Give up, or I'll be forced to put you down.' <laughs> "'Really?' "'The governor immediately rolled to his right-hand side "'and picked up my own gun. "'I looked at him, quite shocked, "'and immediately picked up his own real gun nearby as well. "'We were back to a gunfight, "'although neither of us were ready to fire.' It was nice getting to welcome you to our castle, the governor joked as he held my gun straight to my face, but I suppose your death will come along with a public shaming of sorts. No offense to your living body now. I welcome it. I smiled and I watched as the governor pulled the trigger to my gun, but the chamber, as I knew it would be, was empty. The governor was shocked and looked down at my gun in disenchantment. I could assume that the governor was not the most adept at realizing when the chamber was empty upon a gun. Immediately, the governor looked at me, his merciless face twisting into mercy, like the quick change of the coloration of a deciduous forest. Now, can't we? The governor's offer would not be going anywhere as I shot two bullets into the governor's face. I knew how bad it looked. No doubt we'd be suspected of the murder of the governor and his wife, or confirmed, but it was time to go. I picked up my own gun and dropped the governor's own weapon by his body. I placed my gun back in my backside bag and moved forward to check on on James. I came across an unconscious James Dubois, who was still clutching his shoulder, although with less vigor. A shit ton of blood stained the floor while behind James, the footage of our escape continued to play on loop. I shook James, hoping to wake him so we could get going. James, come on, stay with me. But James was gone. I could tell as the skin seemed to lessen and I felt his arm for a pulse, another follower and another person dedicated to my own mission, dead. I couldn't believe it. The wound had just been to the shoulder, but I suppose a major blood artery had been hit in the process. Before I could think about the reasoning behind the death of James Bois, Clark King came to my rescue. James Bois was a fellow garage mechanic who was also going to college. During the summer, James worked both on the weekends and on Tuesday and Thursday. We got along quite well, even though James went to school for mechanical engineering. Interestingly enough, we didn't speak too much following college. James went on to work for a great company while I never worked at the garage again. Sadly, James Bois was a fragile personality and an addiction to alcohol, a problem for many college students, uh, became an epidemic. At the age of 31, James Du Bois suffered full liver malfunction, which shut down his systems. He was a good guy, very smart, and a good academic. But sometimes there are just things for which you're not smart enough to fix. I stood up over James Du Bois and looked back at the governor. The scene was confusing to an eye that did not witness it. I went over to the dashboard underneath the surveillance monitors and clicked a few buttons. The original display of viewing the castle and the grounds of the scrapyards came back to life. In one of the monitors, I could see a huge cluster of security in the hallway. No doubt they discovered that James and I were missing and that the governor was also nowhere to be found. It was time to go. With everything packed up and my body intact, I did the only thing I could. I boarded the black jet. Immediately, I turned on the buttons and began to drive it down the runway. I was not the world's most experienced pilot, but I had enough skills to get this puppy off the ground. I wondered what the staff of Gear Castle were going to believe with the scene I had left behind. The governor's lair slowly faded away as I entered the dawn of Gignosco. Clark King wasn't done with me. Everyone liked Gov, so they were shocked by the news that he had murdered his wife upon finding out she was sleeping with one of her colleagues. His sense of loyalty had been so high that such a betrayal broke a chord within him. A man who had asked for devotion became devoted to killing his lover turned newfound foe. I had witnessed a shortened form of a story Clark King had lived in his youth. What would it be like to trust and like a cool boss for years to find out that they had killed their wife? Years and years of foundation slammed to the ground? I knew the governor for a day, but what would this have been like had I known the governor for years? talk about betrayal the death of james Bois felt just as souring to me i had liked james even with his weaknesses but once again i was alone but now i was struggling to escape as the airplane dove through the air and into the impending dark fog Thanks so much for listening. For more podcasts created by Steadfast Media Company, check out our website at steadfastmedia.home.blog or join us on Twitter at SteadfastMCO. That's at SteadfastMCO. And at the end of this 10-part series, I'll be releasing the text in novel form. But until next time...